Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jans and my guest today is Jonah Berger. He is a marketing professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and he is also the author of a new book called Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. So Jonah, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we talked uh, about Contagious and uh, it's interesting, um, I want to talk a little bit about the connection between these two books, but let's get into uh, uh, Invisible Influence. Um, one of the promises, and this is actually from your publisher, that, uh, that, that this book explores the subtle secret influences that affect the decisions we make. So it almost sounds a little subversive. <laughs> well, I'm glad it, it, it piqued your interest. I think uh, you know, I, I wrote this book um, because we think we make our own decisions. Uh, when we think about you know the products we buy, the services we use, even big things like the career we chose, we think they come down to us. You know, our preferences, our likes and dislikes. We vote for the candidate that we like, um, but we're actually wrong. Uh, it seems obvious, but we're actually quite wrong. Other people often make our decisions for us. You know, we're more likely to buy something because our neighbor bought it. We're less likely to choose something at dinner because someone else picked the same thing. We, we get motivated at the gym because someone else is working out. We get demotivated at the office because we're compared to a particular coworker who's doing much better. And so others actually have a huge, but often subtle impact on our behavior. And so invisible influence is all about, well, how can we understand that science? And by understanding it, how can we live happier and healthier lives. You know, I think there are examples every day. I mean, you think about the, the, the table of teenage uh, girls that are, you know, all wearing the exact same thing, have the same hairstyle. And I think that we, we tend to have that kind of social influence, in, particularly in, in sort of our need to belong. I mean, does it have a lot to do with that? It does. And I think what's so interesting is when we think about social influence, we often think of a particular example, very much like the one you just talked about. We think about teenagers all dressing the same or listening to the same music. We think about, uh, you know, people conforming to one another. You know, if, if someone else jumped off a bridge, would you jump off too? Um, and so we often think about imitation or conformity. But social influence isn't just about doing the same thing as others. Sometimes social influence leads us to do the opposite thing of others. Um, you know, someone else, for example, we're out to dinner, someone else picks the entree we were thinking of ordering. Well, now we pick something else because we don't want to be the same as them. And so social influence is, is very much like a magnet. You know, sometimes it attracts, it leads us to do the same thing as others. Sometimes it repels. And sometimes it's even somewhere in between. We want to be similar but different at the same time. And so it's really about understanding all those mixes. So as marketers, um, uh, you know, again, I started saying by this, there was maybe almost a subversive feeling to this. I mean, is there a way to take advantage of that as marketers, maybe for good or for bad? Let's take a really uh, simple example from the book uh, that I think is, is a fun one. So um, I tell the story of uh, two people that are negotiating. Uh, and uh, they're trying to reach a negotiation. Reaching negotiation is always tough. Um, and so one person uses a particular trick. Uh, they mimic the other person. And what I mean by mimicry is we can subtly mimic or imitate the behavior of others. Someone crosses their arms, we cross our arms. Uh, someone uses a, a certain phrase, we repeat the same phrase. Well, it turns out that mimicking others, doing the same thing as them, led those negotiators to be five times more likely to reach a successful negotiation. In a, in a restaurant context, if um, restaurant servers uh, imitated the customer, they repeat your order back for you word for word, they get 70% higher tips. And so one simple tool to use here is 
mimicking others, subtly imitating the way they behave, the words they use, even, you know, in emails you mentioned, kind of, you know, someone says hello versus hey versus hi, merely mimicking the text that they use can make us more persuasive, can make us more likely to have the impact we're hoping to have on others. So I wonder, in doing this research, um, sometimes I find when you dig into a field like this, you, you get these aha moments yourself, like, oh, that's what's been happening to me. Or, I mean, did you, did you discover some ways that you have been influenced uh, with or without your knowledge over the years? Yeah, so there's there's a, a funny story. I actually used to coach youth soccer, so um, uh, and coach is generous. I, I it was U12 boys, so I was basically a camp counselor for an hour and a half, a couple times a week, chasing them around, making sure they got in a little bit of shape and and learned something about soccer along the way. But I noticed something unusual. We were a good team. We won a lot of games. We lost some games, but it wasn't random. Uh, we tended to have particularly difficulty uh, when we were ahead. When we were behind, we seemed to do really well. If we were behind a goal at halftime or behind a couple goals, they came out strong, did really well. But when we were ahead, we didn't, we didn't do as well. Sometimes we lost. And so I wondered why. Why did we was actually losing seem to be a, a good thing for the team? So I actually did a research paper on this. We uh, accumulated a bunch of uh, NBA and college basketball games, looked at over 60,000 games in total. And we looked at the score at halftime and the score at the end. So how whether your team was ahead or behind at halftime affected whether they won. Not surprisingly, being ahead and being ahead by more was associated with winning. So every two points a team is ahead, it's about 6% to 8% more likely to win. Makes a lot of sense, right? It's hard to come back from being behind, uh, and better teams tend to be further ahead. Except one place. Actually, being behind by one point not only was helpful, but teams by one point actually were more likely to win than teams ahead by one point. Even though they were worse teams and they were further behind, the fact that they were behind motivated them and caused them to, to work harder. And so I realized, you know, this explained what the, the challenge was for my soccer team. You know, when we were behind, we compared ourselves to others. They were doing better. When the gap was small, we wanted to close that gap and win. But when we were ahead, we didn't feel that same motivation. And so I think that has some really important important implications for running a small business or managing a team. You know, how can we motivate the people we work with and use other people to help motivate folks? So, so you, did you take this research to Las Vegas anywhere? Because <laughs> I, I think that I think in some pockets out there, you could probably bet on games at, at halftime or after halftime. Um, yeah, I've thought, I've thought about doing exactly that. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I grew up in a really big family. I have seven brothers and two sisters, and people used to ask my mom all the time, you know, how did you get them all to kind of walk the line? Um, and she she would always her famous remark was, "I would just get the oldest one going, you know, straight, and I focused on her, and I knew they would all follow behind." And, and you actually have a great, you know, kind of older sibling story and how uh, influence is. I mean, you call it uh, the something about the why athletes are of the, you know, that have older siblings do better. So, um, tell me about that research. Yeah. So, uh, and this is a particularly interesting case of sort of similarity and differentiation. On the one hand, we would think that younger siblings follow older siblings. So, uh, you know, if, if you have an older sibling that's uh, good at sports, for example, uh, you know, you practice with them, you compete with them, and, and you're more likely to be good at sports. Um, but it turns out that siblings actually end up being different often uh, than the siblings that come before them. So sure enough, uh, if you look at, you know, uh, soccer players that do particularly well or other sports people that do well, they tend to have older siblings. Uh, players that are good tend to have older siblings. You might say, well, they learn from their older sibling. 
What's interesting is those older siblings actually tended to play different sports than, than the younger sibling ended up being successful in. And so it's, it's not necessarily that they're learning from the older sibling, but they're both learning as well as trying to differentiate from that older sibling. We've all had that experience if you have a, you know older or younger brother or sister where you know if one person's a smart one, well, someone else ends up being the sporty one. Or if one person's a creative one, you end up being something else. And the problem with siblings is they both provide a path, as you, as you suggested, you know, a path for us to follow, but they also say, this is my path. And if your sibling's really, really smart, really good at school, it's even tougher to overcome them, particularly if they're older than you. So often younger siblings end up taking a slightly different path. They don't just imitate, they actually differentiate themselves as a way of standing out. So this book is essentially a collection of stories. I mean, it's just chock full of great stories. So in the, in the world of invisible influence, you know, what role does storytelling play you know, to create influence? Yeah, I mean, uh, and this relates a little bit to my last book, as you mentioned, Contagious, and I, I talk a little bit about storytelling there as well. I think stories are a powerful way to carry ideas. Um, you know, we think about stories as having a beginning, a middle, and an end. They're really engaging to tell, and people love to listen to them. But good stories don't just share information. They carry ideas along with them for the ride. Um, I think about stories almost like Trojan horses. You know, you probably remember the story of the Trojan horse, but the, the Greeks versus Trojans, no one can win. So they build a big wooden horse and they hide their men inside. Well, good stories are kind of like that. Sure, there's a uh, candy exterior, you know, something that makes it engaging or interesting. But morals or ideas come along as part of that conversation. So if someone tells you the boy who cries wolf, for example, that old famous fable, you don't just walk away going, oh, that's a really good story. You also learn that lying is a bad idea. And so I think as, as marketers, you know, we need to stop selling and we often need to start storytelling. Think about how we can use stories to carry our message or ideas. It's going to be much more effective than sort of telling consumers, well, buy my product or use my service. Let's start telling them stories that illustrate why my product or service is so valuable. And those stories will be much more successful in convincing people than just telling them ever would. So there's almost an entire, I don't know, some people might call it a channel, but it's always been, you know, if, if you were a clothing maker and you could get some celebrity of the day to wear your <laughs> attire, uh, whether you paid them to or they just happened to find it, I mean, that uh, that was extremely influential in possibly selling lots of your products. So this whole this whole field or channel of influencer marketing has uh, has has really I think exploded with online and social and Twitter and all the things that are out there. So what role does that play in, you know, in having sort of a scientific approach to to influence? Yeah, I mean, we think about product placement as sort of, you know, the the laudy goal uh, of marketing. If we can just get, you know, Angela Jolie or Brad Pitt or someone famous to wear or use our product, we'll be successful. But there's a, a funny story I, I tell in the book um, uh, about Snooki, one of the, the characters from the Jersey Shore. Um, and so you may remember Snooki. She was sort of one of the, the, the folks from that show, um, kind of sort of a, uh, a New Jersey character of sorts who was famous for saying, you know, funny things, having a fake tan and, and not being the most intelligent person. Um, but, you know, one day she got a product in the mail, uh, a handbag, and, and that itself is not surprising. It sort of fits with that product placement idea. Some companies sent her a free handbag with the hope that she would wear that handbag. Um, and that makes sense, right? A company might send her a free handbag. They know if Snooki's wearing it, other people will wear it. But it actually turns out that it wasn't the company that made the handbag that was sharing it with Snooki. It was actually one of their competitors. 
And so one of their competitors had actually sent her a bag with the, with the hope that she would wear that bag. And you might think that's un- unusual, but actually something similar happened to one of her uh, showmates, uh, a guy named The Situation, uh, Mike uh, The Situation Sorrentino. Abercrombie & Fitch actually sent him a letter saying, hey, uh, we're willing to pay you, but not to wear our clothes, actually to stop wearing our clothes. And so both of these examples are sort of puzzling as we think about product placement, but it actually turns out that they make a lot of sense when we think about it from a different angle, which is both of these brands are saying, look, you know, it doesn't just matter what a product or service does. It matters what it communicates about the user to others. And so if someone like Snooki is using this handbag or someone like the situation is wearing our clothes, other people might avoid those brands because they don't want to be associated with those people. And so again, social influence doesn't just lead us to imitate others. We might actually avoid certain products or services if folks we don't want to be associated with are, are doing it. And, and I think, you know, we think about clothing, we think it's funny, but these same examples play out in politics. So I was uh, working recently with an organization that wanted to get clean energy to catch on among Republicans. And if, if you think about it, clean energy is very much a conservative issue. It, it saves people money. It allows people to be independent, small government rather than large government. It helps national security. All things that conservative folks should love. Yet conservatives have not adopted clean energy. And if you look at why, many people will tell a simple story. You know, one Republican, uh, actually, senator said, you know, well, Al Gore likes clean energy. And if, if Al Gore likes it, it's probably not for me. Uh, and so what's great about that is it's not just about what clean energy is. It's about what clean energy says about the people using it. You know, do I want to be the type of person that's associated with this particular thing? What does it signal about me, just like whether I wear Abercrombie or carry a handbag, what does it signal about me to support a cause, to vote a certain way? And by understanding what it signals, you can understand whether people will adopt it or abandon it. So you may have actually touched on this already, but one of the, uh, the, the sub-chapters uh, was a topic of why favorites are likely to quit. Um, and I find that really interesting. It probably goes to your, you know, maybe it goes to your story about the basketball team, you know, when they're ahead, they're less likely to quit. Or I mean, I'm sorry, less likely. They're more likely to quit. Um, is you want to you want to touch on that? Sure. So uh, a colleague of mine uh, looked into this question, and and um, you know we we often see people quitting. Uh, we see political candidates saying they're uh, you know begging off to spend more time with their families. We say CEOs saying, oh, you know, I've decided to pursue other opportunities. I've taken up painting. Um, why do those those folks quit? And it turns out, uh, looking at a bunch of tennis matches as well as other situations, that quitting isn't actually random, uh, that people are more likely to quit uh, if they're a favorite uh, than actually, uh, and, and a favorite that ends up losing compared to, to other situations. And, and the notion is, is kind of simple. You know, if you're a favorite, you're expected to win. If it looks like you're not going to win, then you don't really have an excuse for not winning. You were supposed to win. You're supposed to be better. It reflects really badly on you if you end up losing. If you're not the favorite, if you're the one that's supposed to lose, well, losing doesn't say very much about you. It's not that damaging to your image. And so it suggests that favorites are more likely to quit, and the data even suggests this, uh, it backs it up, because of what it might say about them to fail, right? Favorites would rather quit uh, if they're losing than lose and prove out the point that they weren't very good to start with. Yeah, it's kind of the under, underdog has nothing to lose, you know, type of Yeah, thing. I mean, yeah. right, the underdog wins, great, and uh, oh, that's fantastic. The underdog loses, well, that's what we expected in the first place, so it doesn't really say something negatively about them. Yeah. 
So um, you mentioned Contagious, um, and I, I see this as a bit of a companion, but I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, obviously one of the big components of, of Contagious was, you know, how do you, is there a science to making something go viral? Um, how does that book kind of pair with um, Invisible Influence? So uh, in the past few years since Contagious has come out, I've gotten the opportunity to, to talk about it with a huge number of audiences from you know, large Fortune 500 companies and big conferences to small startups and, and small events. And um, lots of people found it useful. They loved uh, the ideas of helping them get their messages or ideas to catch on. But I'd often have people come up to me after I gave a talk or did a podcast and say something along the lines of, you know, this is really interesting um, and I'm going to use it at work. Um, but, you know, what if I want to motivate my team or what if I want to get one other person to do what I want them to do? Um, you know, it's not so big, not big influence in terms of getting a product, to, you know, get 10 million views on the Internet or get a new service to catch on. But smaller level influence, you know, just getting one more person to buy my thing or, you know, just getting one more person to do what I want them to do. Um, what does Contagious have to say about that? And I'd always, I'd think about it for a while and I'd, I'd sort of go, well, you know, Contagious has some things to say about that, but really that's kind of a different book. Uh, and so after saying that a number of times, I realized, well, maybe I should write that book. Um, you know, maybe there's a, enough interest out there in the, in the science of influencing others um, and making better decisions ourselves that it's, it's worth sharing that science. And so that's what I spent the last couple of years doing, you know, pulling together both the science and the stories of, of influence from, you know, how we can make better group decisions with the folks around us, how we can motivate ourselves and others, and, and how we can influence people by understanding these tools. And so my, my hope is that people can use this as a great companion to, to Contagious, both to, to get their stuff to catch on, but also to influence the folks around them in both their workplace and at home. Yeah, and I, I think these go hand in hand. I mean, it's kind of like these are two different tools, but you need them in, in the toolbox. Um, if you're a marketer or, or somebody that you said, even a leader um, who, who wants to rally a team. And I think actually a great sort of modern extension of some of the work that's been done on, on influence. I know Cialdani um, you know, blurbed this book, I think. Am I... Am I right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, what I also, Cialdini's book has always been one of my favorites. Uh, you know, it's called Influence, Science and Practice. You know, it's an old, uh, you know, famous, very famous book that's been on the bestseller list forever. Um, but it's been kind of, you know, over 20 years now um, since original versions of, of those ideas came out. We've learned a lot about, uh, about influence and, and not just persuasion, but kind of the mere fact that someone's doing something or not doing something affecting us. And so uh, hopefully people will see this as a, a useful update, uh, some useful new tools to apply to this new uh, era that we're living in, and a, and a great companion to that book as well. Absolutely. I, I do see it such. Uh, speaking with Jonah Berger, he is the author of Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. So Jonah, is, uh, obviously the book's available everywhere, but is there anywhere you want to send people to find out more or to, to uh, check out some of the research and the resources? Yeah, so uh, best place to find me is, is jonaberger.com. So that's just J-O-N-A-H-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. There's a bunch of free resources there um, to apply this science. There's a bunch of tools and sort of quizzes to help you figure out kind of where you are on some spectrums and uh, figure out where you need to get better. Uh, and you can also find the book there as, as well. And uh, I'm also on Twitter uh, at J1Berger. Great. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time, Jonah. It's always great to speak with you, and hopefully we'll see you out there on the road. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it.